It's June 26th, and this is the One Year Bible Tour Guide, where we read through the entire Bible in the span of one year in daily increments. Each day we make further progress in reading through the Old and New Testaments. My name is David McAdam, and I am pleased to serve as your reader and tour guide. After each Bible reading, we provide summary observations that we hope will prove helpful and encourage you as you take up the discipline of daily Bible reading, giving attention to each verse in its proper context. You can also receive a free written transcript of the daily commentary portion with maps and illustrations by subscribing to a daily one-year Bible tour email at our website, newlife.org. Right now we are in the section of the Old Testament known as the historical books that give us the sad account of the failures of the kings of Israel and Judah to keep their covenant commitments to God. Again, we will see that the wages of sin is death. This judgment is a consequence of sin and highlights mankind's greatest need for mercy. That mercy will be provided when the atoning blood of the true Lamb of God, Jesus of Nazareth, is provided on the altar of Calvary in the New Testament. And only then can the judgment seat become a mercy seat, and only then can there be found a true reconciling peace with God. After we read today's portion from the book of Second Kings, we will travel to the New Testament where we read of the Apostle Paul preaching in Athens the truth that Jesus has been singled out as the one God has appointed to judge the living and the dead. He who is the righteous judge is also the righteous justifier of those who put their trust in him. So first let's go to the Old Testament book of Second Kings, where the political intrigues continue and judgment falls upon the house of Ahab. Second Kings chapter 9 verse 14 is where we will start today, and we will read through to chapter 10 verse 31. Jehu assassinates Joram and Ahaziah. Second Kings chapter 9 verse 14. Thus Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now Joram, with all Israel, had been on guard at Ramoth-Gilead against Hazael, king of Syria. But King Joram had returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that the Syrians had given him when he fought with Hazael, king of Syria. So Jehu said, If this is your decision, then let no one slip out of the city to go and tell the news in Jezreel. Then Jehu mounted his chariot and went to Jezreel, for Joram lay there, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, had come down to visit Joram. Now the watchman was standing on the tower of Jezreel, and he saw the company of Jehu as he came and said, I see a company. And Joram said, Take a horseman and send to meet him, and let him say, Is it peace? So a man on horseback went to meet him and said, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Jehu said, What do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride with me. And the watchman reported, saying, The messenger reached them, but he is not coming back. Then he sent out a second horseman, who came to them and said, Thus the king has said, Is it peace? And Jehu answered, What do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. Again the watchman reported, He reached them, but he is not coming back. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. Joram said, Make ready. And they made ready his chariot. 
Then Joram king of Israel and Ahaziah king of Judah set out, each in his chariot, and went to meet Jehu, and met him at the property of Naboth the Jezreelite. And when Joram saw Jehu, he said, Is it peace, Jehu? He answered, What peace can there be, so long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? Then Joram reigned about and fled, saying to Ahaziah, Treachery, O Ahaziah! And Jehu drew his bow with his full strength and shot Joram between the shoulders, so that the arrow pierced his heart, and he sank in his chariot. Jehu said to Bidkar, his aide, Take him up and throw him on the plot of ground belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. For remember, when you and I rode side by side behind Ahab his father, how the Lord made this pronouncement against him. As surely as I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground. Now therefore take him up and throw him on the plot of ground in accordance with the word of the Lord. When Ahaziah, the king of Judah, saw this, he fled in the direction of Beth-Hagan. And Jehu pursued him and said, Shoot him also. And they shot him in the chariot at the ascent of Gur, which is by Ibliam. And he fled to Megiddo and died there. His servants carried him in a chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his tomb with his fathers in the city of David. In the eleventh year of Joram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah began to reign over Judah. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out of the window. And as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it peace, you Zimri, murderer of your master? And he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked out at him. He said, Throw her down. So they threw her down, and some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses, and they trampled on her. Then he went in and ate and drank, and he said, See now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. But when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. When they came back and told him, he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite. In the territory of Jezreel the dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say, This is Jezebel. Chapter 10 Now Ahab had seventy sons in Samaria. So Jehu wrote letters and sent them to Samaria, to the rulers of the city to the elders and to the guardians of the sons of Ahab, saying, Now then, as soon as this letter comes to you, seeing your master's sons are with you, and there are with you chariots and horses, fortified cities also, and weapons, select the best and fittest of your master's sons, and set them on his father's throne, and fight for your master's house. But they were exceedingly afraid, and said, Behold, the two kings could not stand before him. How then can we stand? So he who was over the palace, and he who was over the city, together with the elders and the guardians, sent to Jehu, saying, We are your servants, and we will do all that you tell us. We will not make anyone king. Do whatever is good in your eyes. Then he wrote to them a second letter, saying, If you are on my side, and if you are ready to obey me, 
Take the heads of your master's sons and come out to me at Jezreel tomorrow at this time. Now the king's sons, seventy persons, were with the great men of the city who were bringing them up. And as soon as the letter came to them, they took the king's sons and slaughtered them, seventy persons, and put their heads in baskets and sent them to him at Jezreel. When the messenger came and told him, They have brought the heads of the king's sons, he said, Lay them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until morning. Then in the morning, when he went out, he stood and said to all the people, You are innocent. It was I who conspired against my master and killed him, but who struck down all these. Know then that there shall fall to the earth nothing of the word of the Lord which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab, for the Lord has done what he said by his servant Elijah. So Jehu struck down all who remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel, all his great men and his close friends and his priests, until he left him none remaining. Then he set out and went to Samaria. On the way, when he was at Bethachhed of the shepherds, Jehu met the relatives of Ahaziah king of Judah, and he said, Who are you? And they answered, We are the relatives of Ahaziah, and we came down to visit the royal princes and the sons of the queen mother. He said, Take them alive. And they took them alive and slaughtered them at the pit of Beth-Eked, forty-two persons, and he spared none of them. And when he departed from there, he met Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. And he greeted him and said to him, Is your heart true to my heart as mine is to yours? And Jehonadab answered, It is. Jehu said, If it is, give me your hand. And he gave him his hand. And Jehu took him up with him into the chariot. And he said, Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So he had him ride in his chariot. And when he came to Samaria, he struck down all who remained to Ahab in Samaria, till he had wiped them out, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke to Elijah. Then Jehu assembled all the people and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little, but Jehu will serve him much. Now therefore call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his worshippers and all his priests. Let none be missing, for I have a great sacrifice to offer to Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. But Jehu did it with cunning in order to destroy the worshippers of Baal. And Jehu ordered, Sanctify a solemn assembly for Baal. So they proclaimed it. And Jehu sent throughout all Israel, and all the worshippers of Baal came, so that there was not a man left who did not come. And they entered the house of Baal, and the house of Baal was filled from one end to the other. He said to him who was in charge of the wardrobe, Bring out the vestments for all the worshippers of Baal. So he brought out the vestments for them. Then Jehu went into the house of Baal with Jehonadab the son of Rechab. And he said to the worshippers of Baal, Search and see that there is no servant of the Lord here among you, but only the worshippers of Baal. Then they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had stationed eighty men outside and said, The man who allows any of those whom I give into your hands to escape shall forfeit his life. So as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, Jehu said to the guard and to the officers, Go in and strike them down. Let not a man escape. So when they put them to the sword, the guard and the officers cast them out and went into the inner room of the house of Baal. 
and they brought out the pillar that was in the house of Baal and burned it. And they demolished the pillar of Baal and demolished the house of Baal and made it a latrine to this day. Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he had made Israel to sin, that is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. And this is the end of our reading from today's portion from the book of Second Kings. Now let's take a few moments for our recap and reflections. Jehu, commander of the Israeli army, is a man on a mission. Whatever his motives or the morality of his free actions, he is anointed by God to rise up against his king and fulfill the task of bringing judgment upon the house of Ahab and a people who have accommodated pagan idolatry. He is ready to call out Israel's sin and put an end to Baal worship. Ahaziah, king of Judah, a grandson of Ahab, also known as Jehoahaz, comes to visit his uncle, King Joram, Ahab's son, king of Israel and Jezreel. King Joram is recovering from his wounds received in his battle with Hazael of Aram, or Syria. During the visit, a watchman sees from the window Jehu's troops approaching. Joram sends horsemen, one by one, to meet the approaching entourage with the question, Do you come in peace? This question was probably intended to mean, Do you come with good news about the battle for the recovery of Ramoth-Gilead? Jehu boldly replies with a searching question that turns on the word peace. What have you to do with peace? That is, the peace of the Lord. And he commands them to fall in behind him. When the watchmen see that the king's messengers are not returning, but joining with Jehu, who is driving the chariots with furious speed, both Joram and Ahaziah become suspicious and ride out to meet Jehu. Jehu speaks plainly when asked by Joram, Have you come in peace? And Jehu answered, What peace, so long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcrafts are so many? Second Kings chapter 9, verse 22 When King Joram hears this, he recognizes his commander has turned against him, and he flees, crying out to King Ahaziah, Treachery! Jehu draws his bow and shoots Joram between the shoulders, so the arrow pierces his heart. He orders that Joram be thrown on the field that belonged to Naboth, fulfilling the prophecy that Elijah had given in 1 Kings chapter 21, verses 18-24. through 24. Ahaziah flees and is eventually wounded by his pursuers and dies at Megiddo. His servants took his body to be buried with his fathers of the Davidic line in Jerusalem. Next, Jehu returns to Jezreel, where Jezebel, hearing about this, is painting her eyes and arranging her hair, looking out from her window. She makes a warning plea to Jehu, reminding him of Zimri, who fifty years earlier, after killing King Elah and exterminating the house of Baasha, lived only seven days before committing suicide. Jehu calls for her servants to throw her down from the window to her death, fulfilling Elijah's prophecy about both her and Ahab's son. In 1 Kings 21, verses 23-24, to 24, 
of Jezebel also has the Lord spoken, saying, The dogs will eat Jezebel in the district of Jezreel. The one belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs will eat, and the one who dies in the field, the birds of heaven will eat. He then rides his horse over her body until she is dead. Jehu continues his search-and-destroy mission to completely cut down the descendants of Ahab. He sends a letter to the caregivers of Ahab's children to put the most worthy on his father's throne. They realize by this time that Jehu is now king and that they dare not set up another of Ahab's descendants to rule. Jehu asks them to prove their loyalty by bringing him the heads of all the descendants within twenty-four hours. Seventy of the princes were killed according to Jehu's wishes. Jehu's zeal goes beyond obedience to what the Lord commanded. His own pride and ambition take over. He meets relatives of King Ahaziah of Judah on their way to visit the king and queen of Israel, not knowing of what has happened. He takes them captive at first, and then has him killed. He wants to prove to Jehonadab his zeal for the Lord. Jehu gathers all the prophets of Baal, deceptively claiming that he wants to serve Baal too. As they are gathered, Jehu has them slaughtered. His guards and officers demolished the sacred stone and tear down the temple of Baal. Its ruins are to be used as a latrine. Jehu is successful in destroying Baal worship in Israel, but fearing the political implications, he fails to deal with the false religious system of Jeroboam, the worship of the golden calves at Bethel and Dan. Jehu is commended for implementing God's commands in one area, eliminating Baal worship, but reprimanded for his disregard for the law of God by accommodating the sins of Jeroboam. Faithful leadership requires uncompromising obedience to the Word of God. Now let's go to today's reading in the New Testament, the book of Acts, chapter 17, verses 1 through 34. Paul and Silas in Thessalonica. The book of Acts, chapter 17. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great number of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set in the city an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king. Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. 
But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This concludes today's reading from our New Testament portion from the book of Acts. Now let's take a few moments to summarize our gleanings. You remember that the magistrates just wanted Paul and Silas to leave Philippi quickly and quietly because they realized that they had made a big mistake to put Paul, who was a Roman citizen, in prison without a trial. It is another reminder that there are times when we turn the other cheek and there are other times when it is for the advantage of the gospel to use the God-given defense of the law. It is possible that Luke stayed behind in Philippi because he no longer uses the pronoun we 
and doesn't do so again until chapter 20. Paul and Silas, and probably Timothy, will travel southwest from Philippi about 100 miles on the Ignatian Way. He passes through Amphipolis at mile 30, stopping only for the night, moves onward to Apollonia at mile 60, and then goes another 40 miles to Thessalonica, a capital city of Macedonia, a city of 200,000 people. Paul's pattern of ministry is to minister the gospel to the Jew first. Therefore he preaches for three Sabbaths in the synagogue. A man of Paul's credentials would be given a hearing, as he was once a student of the famous rabbi Gamaliel. Their short stay at Thessalonica would be highly controversial, yet result in the planting of a powerful evangelical church. Paul would preach in the synagogue from the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus is the Christ and that his death on the cross was necessary to provide atonement of our sins. Some of the members of the synagogue believed, as well as a great many God-fearing Greeks and leading women. This raised the ire of some of the Jewish leaders who were jealous of Paul's persuasive power. They instigated a riot with an angry mob attacking the home of Jason, whom they believed was housing Paul and Silas. They could not find Paul and Silas, so they took Jason to the city authorities and apparently held him hostage until money was taken as a security and agreement was made that Paul and Silas would leave the city. The charges brought against these church planters were such that we all wish could be said of us. The men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Acts chapter 17 verse 6 And they claim to serve another king, Jesus. Acts chapter 17 verse 7 Paul and Silas are sent away to Berea. The Jewish leaders in the synagogue were more receptive than the Thessalonians. They cross-reference what Paul was preaching with the Scriptures in Acts chapter 17, verse 11. The Bereans are commended because they received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures to see if these things were so. This healthy habit is often given as a model for believers, but in the context of the story, this was a habit of the spiritually hungry seekers who were not yet believers. Many of them believed, including some notable Greek men and women. The Jews from Thessalonica would give Paul and Silas no peace. They traveled to Berea to stir up crowds once again against them. Paul goes on to Athens, and as he takes in the sights of the city, he sees that they have temples to every possible god they could think of, Apollo, Jupiter, Venus, Mercury, Bacchus, Neptune, and Diana, to name a few. There is also a statue dedicated to the unknown god, in case they missed one out. So Paul reasoned with the Jews and God-fearing Greeks in the synagogue and with whoever happened to be in the marketplace. Acts chapter 17, verse 17. Paul's example in Athens is instructive. He habitually took opportunities to enter into discussion with non-Christians. He identified the worldviews of his hearers. At Mars Hill, he recognized the Epicureans in the crowd. They were philosophers who lived for sensual pleasure, to eat, drink, and be merry, with no belief in the afterlife or judgment. He also identified the Stoics. They were those who believed that the world is determined by fate and that careful attention must be given to rationality, integrity, and duty. Nothing is random or chance. You must accept your fate with self-mastery, suppress desires and emotions, and not allow yourselves to be broken by circumstances. Paul preached a clear gospel while challenging the premises of their faulty worldviews. He knew their culture, could quote their poets, 
but he preached to them Jesus. Paul started by affirming their common ground. Men of Athens, I perceive that you are very religious in all respects. He then points to the insufficiency of their belief systems. They are aware that there are many things of which they are ignorant, including the unknown God. Their piety was based on misinformation. He starts with the fact of creation. He challenges the Epicurean's belief that life emerges from a chance combination of atoms. He challenges the pantheism of the Stoics, the belief that God is in everything. He also notes that God is independent from all. God is the creator of man, not the creation of man. He is the only independent being. He is entirely self-sufficient in himself and has no needs. In Acts chapter 17, verse 25, this is what theologians call the doctrine of aseity. Paul proclaims that he is the sustainer of life and the determiner of every person's eternal destiny. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Acts chapter 17, verses 26 through 31. Paul underscores the responsibility of every human being to this message and explains why. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. It is interesting to discover what provokes the reaction to the various messages preached by the apostles. In Jerusalem, it is when they hear that God is offering salvation to the Gentiles. Here in Athens, what provokes them to mocking is Paul's proclamation of Jesus' resurrection. Some were curious and wanted to hear more. We learn of the names of some of those who believed, Dionysius, the Arapagite, and a woman named Damaris, among others. Now let's go to the book of Psalms, Psalm 144, verses 1-15. through 15. My Rock and My Fortress A Psalm of David Psalm 144 Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues peoples under me. O Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath, his days are like a passing shadow. Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Flash forth the lightning and scatter them. Send out your arrows and rout them. Stretch out your hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from the many waters, from the hand of foreigners, whose mouths speak lies, and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song to you, O God. Upon a ten-stringed harp I will play to you, who gives victory to kings, who rescues David his servant from the cruel sword. Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners, 
whose mouths speak lies, and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. May our sons in their youth be like plants full-grown, our daughters like corner pillars cut for the structure of a palace. May our granaries be full, providing all kinds of produce. May our sheep bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. May our cattle be heavy with young, suffering no mishap or failure in bearing. May there be no cry of distress in our streets. Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Do you realize that the Lord is equipping you both for service and spiritual battle? He is also wanting to show you that He is your defense when the enemies that war against your soul threaten to overtake you. O Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him, or the son of man that you think of him? Psalm 144, verse 3. This reminds us of what the psalmist expressed in Psalm 8. What is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Psalm 8, verse 4. How we need the mind of the eternal when we see the corruptions of our natural life in time. Man is like a mere breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Psalm 144, verse 4. This world is foreign to citizens of heaven. The kingdoms of this world are full of lying mouths and served by deceitful hands. Psalm 144, verse 8. The psalmist prays to be delivered from their influence. In verse 11, he anticipates the abundant blessings of the kingdom of God. In verses 12 through 15. How blessed are the people who are so situated. How blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Psalm 144, verse 15. The psalmist is ready to compose and perform new songs of praise for the one who gives him victory. Now let's conclude today's reading tour by going to the book of Proverbs, where a proverb a day keeps foolishness away. Proverbs 17, verses 27 and 28. Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. Do you know how to exercise restraint in your speech? Do you know how to turn away wrath with a soft answer? How about keeping your cool? At least if you say nothing, people might give you the benefit of the doubt and think that you are wise. Now let's pray. Lord, we ask that our zeal for you would not be tainted with natural ambitions and pride. Keep us humble and ready to do your will for your glory. Help us to flee all idolatries in our lives. Give us the wisdom, boldness, and the grace to engage non-believers in fruitful conversations about you and help us to make the gospel clear. Teach us to use restraint and may our lives make people hungry for the bread from heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. As we have been reading through the Bible, I've been inspired. I want to be among those people of whom it is said, the people who have turned the world upside down have come here. I want people to say of us that, hey, they have been with Jesus and they serve another king. We are thankful that we have the king's self-revelation in the scriptures. And tomorrow we look forward to continuing our journey. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to write us at podcast at newlife.org. And don't forget to subscribe to our daily email at our website, newlife.org. 
Now to him who is able to keep us from stumbling and to make us stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.